us. Philippians chapter number 2. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. I have a very simple message for you this evening. Paul writing says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to do and or both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Let's pray tonight. Father, we love you. We thank you for the time you've given us. I pray that you'd uh, give clarity to our thoughts and words, and Lord, uh, to our listening ears. And Father, may we absorb the truth of your word tonight. May it be applied through the Holy Ghost as we submit unto Him. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Philippians chapter number 2, I've titled the message tonight, The Christmas Example. Because what Paul does is he takes a bird's eye view of the incarnation and what it means and how it serves as an example for the way that you and I ought to be and live and the frame of mind and the type of mind that we ought to have as we interact with each other. Now, let me say again that if we were to try to exhaust all of the truth we could learn from the reality of the Incarnation, then certainly uh, eternity would run out quicker than we'd run out of things that we could learn. But I want you to notice three simple thoughts tonight that I believe the Incarnation teaches us, and they ser- it serves as an example in these three areas of how we ought to be and treat one another and behave uh, towards the world around us. Look at the first four verses. And remember, the context of this is the incarnation. He, he lays that forth down verses 5 uh, through verse number 11. That's the centerpiece, almost, as it were. And everything gravitates around that. And writing to this church, he, he says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, and that's another way of Paul saying, uh, if you've got what God's given you, if you've got what it means to be saved, in other words, if, if you're saved by the grace of God and have then enjoyed and partake in all that that implies and means, and it's almost sort of a, a, a way, a subtle way of Paul saying, if you are what you say you are, if you truly know the Lord, and if you're truly walking with God, he says, then do this, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let me say number one tonight. We can look at the incarnation of Christ and see the, the Lord's behavior and see a selfless example 
that you and I ought to embrace and exhibit in our lives. There is no act in the history of the human experience more selfless than the act of the incarnation was on the part of the Son of God. You understand that He dwelt in glory with the Godhead. Uh, He spoke of it in the book of John, uh, the glory that Him and the Father had before the world began. You've heard me say this a hundred times, but I'll remind you again tonight that uh, Jesus didn't have to be made flesh to become God. He was already God. It didn't make Him more God to do so. Certainly, if He had wanted to do so, Him and the Father and the Spirit, they could have pushed this earth off into the abyss and said, I don't want to fool with it anymore. I'm not interested in mankind anymore. It's a a failure, and I'm not interested in uh, all the effort and pain and suffering it would take. But instead, the Lord of glory robed Himself in flesh, took upon Himself the, the form of man, and uh, descended to this earth, and He did so not necessarily for His benefit, but for our good and for our benefit. I don't want to misrepresent uh, anything. Certainly, the Lord receives glory from saving sinners. And certainly, He desires and delights in the salvation of you and I when we place our faith in Christ. Uh, All of heaven rejoiced when you got saved, and all of heaven rejoiced when I got saved. But the basic act of the incarnation was something that the Son was doing, not for His own sake, but number one, for the sake of the Father, and number two, for the sake of the fallen. He was doing it for you and for I. And in light of that, the Apostle Paul gives three simple instructions. Notice the first one in verse number two. He says, You ought to fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love being of one accord and of one mind. Now, something you're going to learn when you're around human beings, this is especially true uh, even around church folks, but it's true in your family, it's true in any situation. The only way for people to be of one mind is for them to be willing to uh, sacrifice some things on their own part in order to maintain that. This is part of the reason I I believe that uh, ecumenical uh, association is a failure and it's doomed to fail. I believe there's a reason God structured the local church as being autonomous. Because any time that you got a big group of people that's going to get together and agree to disagree, they ain't going to agree to disagree. Uh, they're going to agree to find what they can agree on and ignore what they can't agree on. And it's going to lead to compromise. But now, the instruction that Paul's giving is not that of ecumenical association. But he's talking about the association between believers And what he's talking about is the many times that selfish desires will cause us to strive for ourselves instead of the well-being of God's people and instead of the well-being of one another. Now this, of course, is exemplified, and I don't want to preach my message before I get there, but this is exemplified beautifully in the Godhead. Because certainly it was not a comfortable thing, it was not a palatable thing, it was not a pleasurable thing for the Lord Jesus Christ to be made flesh. But he did so, and I don't want to misrepresent, I don't want to make it seem like there was disharmony in the Godhead, but we do understand it cost Christ something to be made flesh. It cost him something to die in our place. He experienced suffering and torment like we could never imagine. Why did he do that? He did so that the love of God might be expressed to a lost and fallen world. In the same respect, you and I, listen, and this is really what it comes down to. If we're going to get along, we've got to make it about somebody other than just us. As long as you're making it about you and I'm making it about me and everybody else in this room is doing the same thing, then we're never going to be of one accord and of one mind. 
Only by being selfless in our associations are we able to find this kind of unity. But then not only in your associations, but in your estimations. Look what he says in verse number 3. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. And I've got two good hillbilly words for that. It's fussing and fighting. Strife, of course, we know what strife is. But vainglory, you know what that means? It means seeking to have the preeminence. And God looks at that glory and He says that glory is empty glory. In other words, the glory we heap upon ourselves is not really glory at all. Uh, when people talk about themselves, and we all as human beings, we do this, we always put ourselves in the best possible light. Uh, listen, we don't ever lie, we bend the truth, right? Uh, you know, we don't ever mess up, we meant to do it that way, you just didn't know about it in advance. Uh, we don't ever do anything wrong, we just do it differently. And we all have a tendency to do this. We all whitewash our lives, and, and we all uh, touch up and, and airbrush our behavior. And the Bible says that's vainglory. That's empty glory. It has no substance to it. And so he says, you ought to not let anything be done through strife or vainglory. But what should we do? He says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Lowliness of mind. You know what that means? That means to take the lower position in the way we think of ourselves. When we're at a fork in the road trying to determine things in life, for instance, we've all, have you ever had those moments in life where you looked around and said, I don't know if I'm crazy or everybody else is? <laughs> I, I've still not figured it out, at least not for me. We come to a fork in the road and so oftentimes we have to determine or decide within our own hearts and minds uh, who we believe is right or who we believe is wrong. i got news for you, 99% of the time it really don't matter. To solving the problem. 99% of the time it don't matter who was right and who was wrong. But in that situation, so oftentimes we have the tendency to want to take the higher place and the higher position. Paul says, no, in lowliness of mind, rather than esteeming yourself, esteem one another better than yourself. Now, let me ask you something. Is this what Christ did? Of course it is. And it's not to say that Christ admitted some guilt that was not there and was not valid and was not true, but it is to say this. There's nothing in the universe, nothing in existence, nothing in being that is of more value than God's Son. Nothing of more precious nature than His life. And He gave His life for your life, my life. He esteemed us as being valuable, even when there wasn't much about us that seemed valuable. One of the great marks of spiritual maturity is seeing value in things that, number one, the world does not see value in. But, number two, seeing value in things that don't benefit yourself personally. When we begin to see things as valuable simply because God values them, then we begin to embrace what is the mind of Christ. I believe this is the reason the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. David was not a perfect man. David made a lot of mistakes. David did things in his life that you'll never do in your life. But David had a right estimation of God's holiness, of sin's wickedness, and of just how lofty and precious and holy God was. He loved the things that God loved. He hated the things that God hated. He was not a perfect man, but he had the right value system in his life. And he had a heart like God's. Then notice what it says in the next verse, verse number 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In our evaluation, we ought to be selfless. 
In other words, we ought not constantly be focusing on us and what we do and where we can get praise and where we can get glory, but we ought to constantly be looking to other people's lives and seeking some way in which we can encourage them in the work of the Lord. I'll tell you something. There's far too much discouragement as, as it is. Don't be a discouraging person. It's so easy to be discouraging. I've been that person at times. I'm sure you've been that person at times. It's so easy to speak before we think, and it's real easy to speak before we pray. And when we do that, we allow ourselves to be members of unrighteousness used for the devices of Satan to discourage one another. One of the ways we do this is by living a self-centered life where everything's all about us and what we do and how we feel and what we think. This is part of the problem in the world today. We live in a basically, no, we don't live in a, we live in a profoundly selfish world. Profoundly. We live in a world where all that matters is what we think, how we feel, what we desire. And how often do you hear people say that? They'll say things like, well, it's my life and it's what I want and I'll make the decision and so on and so forth. Look at the world, man, it's on fire. And it's because people live this way. The example of Christ's incarnation sets forth that he valued others' lives above his own, but also that he looked at the potential of those that at that time seemed to have no potential, and he esteemed those things as great. You've heard this said before. You've heard this phrase, he looked beyond my fault and saw my need. When he saw me from the cross, he didn't just see what I was. He saw what I could be. And I'm not much. What I am, I am by the grace of God. But he looked beyond what I was in that moment. And this takes real spiritual discernment to do this. I'm not very apt at it. I pray that the Lord will give me better grace in this area. But to look beyond where someone's at and see what God could do with them. Not to always be looking at ourselves, but looking to others and building them up in the most holy faith. We ought to have a selfless mind. Then look at verse 5 through 8. It says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." The second type of mind, or the second example we see from the Incarnation, is that of a submissive mind. A submissive mind. Now, I'll go ahead and admit to you, I'm not about to perfectly explain what I'd like to perfectly explain. I understand there was perfect harmony in the Godhead. But I don't understand how, if there was perfect harmony already in the Godhead, Christ could become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I understand there was never a time when his will was at odds with the Father's will. And yet in the garden he said, not my will, but thy will. But I do understand this, that in coming to this earth and being incarnated and walking amongst men and in dying a vicious and cruel and violent death on the cross, he showed us both the path, power, and purpose of being submitted to God. He showed us that it is possible to be submitted to God and he showed us it was profitable to be submitted to God. Now, let me say that submission does not come out of a false humility. Notice what it says in verse five or verse number 6, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. 
In other words, Christ did not robe Himself in flesh because it was somehow inappropriate for Him to be on equal footing with the Father. Uh, let me say this, that there is no pecking order in the Godhead. And if we were going to determine or dictate what would be appropriate, it would be equally as appropriate for the Father to have robed Himself in flesh as it would have been for the Son to have robed Himself in flesh. They are co-equal. There is no daylight in between their divinity. They are co-equal. Christ did not robe Himself in flesh because He felt it necessary or appropriate uh, or was somehow feigning a humility that was not substantial. He understood exactly who He was. And He understood exactly His place and role in the Godhead. Now let me say this, and I, and I want to say it correctly. And I, ain't, I ain't preaching about marriage tonight, but uh, assuming God's proper role is not a humiliation. It's not a humiliation. The humiliating thing would be, and I say this to both to husbands and wives, because we both have our roles. Uh, we understand the husband's the head of the home. We understand the wife has submitted herself under her husband as under Christ, that uh, the husband's to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave his own self for it. You've heard the passages. I've preached on them. You've heard preaching from other people on them. But somehow we've allowed the world to warp our sense of understanding to such a degree that we view it as though, and, and women in particular view it as though it's a humiliating thing to take the role that God designed. He didn't just assign it to women. He designed it for women. And He designed them for it. It's not a humiliating thing. The world tells you it is. Listen, these women get on the view and cluck at each other about how, how uh, miserable and how pitiful it is for a woman to want to stay at home and care for her family. Uh, listen, they ain't got enough sense to get in and out of the rain. Anything that God calls you to do in your life and lays before you is a high holy privilege. And we ought not disparage it. We see this equally true within the Godhead. The fact that the Son was the Son was not a humiliation to the Son. And he did not think it inappropriate to be on equal footing with God. But what did he do? He made himself of no reputation. In other words, he did not make it his goal and purpose to accrue glory to himself. He made himself of no reputation. Uh, but the Bible says, "...took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men." The incarnation teaches us that to be a servant is a holy thing and a privileged thing. This is something the Lord tried to get in the mind of His disciples over and over and over again. How many times when you read through the Gospels do you find the Lord saying, He that's first shall be last, and he that's last shall be first. The greatest shall be the least, and the least shall be the greatest. Over and over and over and over again, He tried to get through their mind that the preferred and privileged station was that of a servant. And it wasn't something to be ashamed of. Now here's the problem. We live our whole lives as believers thinking that we're serving others. And if that's our perspective, we're not going to be very good servants. You know why? Because people aren't always deserving of our servitude. And they're not always appreciative of it. And they're not always reciprocal of it and responsive to it. We have to understand in the same way that Christ understood that He was serving His Father. Now, of course He understood He was serving mankind in a sense. Of course He understood He was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But He also 
early on, and, and I guess if we were preaching chronologically uh, with Christmas as the centerpiece, we might be preaching tonight on uh, the teenage years of the Lord Jesus Christ. But don't you remember in the temple, he said, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business, not Israel's business, not mankind's business, my father's business. He said in John chapter number uh, 4, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He was submissive because he knew the one he was being submissive to was worthy of his submission. And once we get through our mind that to be like Christ is to be submitted entirely and wholly to God, there and then and in that situation alone will we find contentment and peace and fulfillment in life. He says in verse 8, Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The greatest lesson that we can gain from the Christmas story in the Incarnation is the value and power of obedience. Great things are accomplished when men and women obey God. Great things. Nothing is accomplished when we disobey God. We know this is true because Christ said, Without me you can do nothing. But when we will simply seek God's face and obey Him, Oh my, listen, how many books do we buy and read to try to straighten things out? How many sermons do we listen to? How many conferences do we go to? How much energy do we spend? How many videos do we watch? Or uh, How many things do we listen to trying to straighten our life out when the one singular thing that makes our life of merit and value we refuse to do, and that's obey God. Read His Word and obey it. Listen, if there's some area of your life that you know is out of line with God tonight, the first thing you need to do is ask God's forgiveness and bring your heart and mind into submission to God and obey God. Don't try anything else first. Obey God first. Christ showed us the ultimate truth of obedience. Then I want you to notice one final thing, and I'm done tonight. Look at verses 9 through 13. And we'll really we'll, we'll just read verse 9 through 11 at first. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We'll read the next two as well. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. As we look at the Christmas season in the Incarnation, we ought to see in it an example of a selfless mind, an example of a submissive mind. But then I want to say tonight we ought to see in it an example of a steadfast mind. Now, I want you to notice a word in verse number 12, and it's the word, wherefore. This word wherefore means based upon what we've just said. I'll give you an example. Verse number 9 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Why did God do that? God did that because of what's written in verses 6, 7, and 8. He became obedient unto death. He, he was submissive. He humbled himself. He, he uh, was made in the likeness of man. He took upon himself the form of a servant. Because he did these things, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Wherefore? 
Now stop and think about that in the context of verse 12. All that's been said about what Christ has done, His entire example, and it says, Wherefore, and then as it goes on down, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. My preacher used to say, and this always stuck with me, it doesn't say to work in your salvation. It says to work out your salvation. And it's not implying that we somehow need to labor and persevere so that we can truly be saved. But what it's saying is this, you have salvation in you. That salvation ought to be working outwardly from you. In other words, there ought to be an outward example and exhibition and expression of that salvation. What Paul's saying is you ought to live on the outside what's living on the inside. And why does he say that? He gives this example that Christ, He was in the form of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. There was nothing wrong with the Godhead. But He understood that the Father had a plan to redeem mankind. And that plan involved Him taking upon Himself the form of a servant, esteeming the life of of lost sinners as being valuable, even in His mind and heart more valuable than His own life, because He was willing to give His own life to save our lives. And so he takes upon himself the form of a servant. He's made in the likeness of man. Why did he do this? Because he understood that God had a plan and a purpose, and he had a role within that plan, and it was the role of the sacrificial servant, the Messiah, and that if he would obey God and do what the Father asked and required of him, that God would honor that, that the plan of God would be brought to fruition, that he would be highly exalted, and that sinners would come to know God in a personal way. And because of this, he suffered the things that he suffered. Reminds me of Hebrews chapter number 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. In other words, when he was going to the cross, he wasn't just looking at the cross He was looking at the crown. And when we say the crown, what I mean is you and I, the crown of rejoicing that we are, the fact that we could be saved. He looked past the cross and saw what God would bring about. And therefore, he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem, knowing what it would mean, knowing what it would be, knowing what it would experience. He he endured the cross. He despised the shame. It's not that he enjoyed the cross. He endured the cross. It's not that that he desired the shame. He despised the shame. But he steeled his nerve. And he walked that road and he went to Calvary. Why? Because he knew that God had a plan and a purpose. We might say this, that in the cross of Calvary, the salvation of God was worked out towards humanity. And now, in your life and mine, inasmuch as we practice this, as we are selfless and submitted and steadfast, then what God has done in our hearts and lives, in indwelling us through the Holy Spirit, in changing our lives, in giving us a joy unspeakable, full of glory, in making us light and making us salt and making us the life of Christ walking in this earth, the life of God being lived through us, inasmuch as we'll surrender and submit unto God, and our salvation is worked outwardly and is expressed to this world. Then notice what it says in verse number 14 or 13. It is God which worketh in you. 
If we'll be steadfast, God will use our lives. God don't use quitters. If there, You go through Scripture and find somebody that was a quitter, and God couldn't use them while they were a quitter. God had to straighten them out, make them not a quitter anymore to use them again. Look at Elijah. Elijah was a quitter. And he sat down under that juniper tree. He said, I just want to sit here and die. I'm done with it. And God sent an angel by to come by, feed him and kick him and get him up and march him through the desert to a cave where he had an appointment with God. And by the time he left that cave, he understood that he wasn't the only person in the world anymore. God had plenty that hadn't bowed their knee to Baal. And that God had a plan that even Elijah couldn't see. You know, Elijah was saying, I and I only am left alone. Boy, how many times have we sang that song? Sat up under our juniper tree and said, I'm the only person who wants to serve God anymore. What a bunch of nonsense. What a lie from the devil. God's got a plan. God's got a purpose. But it's not going to work if we don't stay steadfast. We have to stay a course. Not to be saved. Not to keep our salvation. But for our salvation to be worked outwardly and to touch and to change the world around us. And for the plan and purpose of God to be brought to fruition in our lives in a mighty way. Yes, we do have to stay a course and be steadfast. He said, Preacher, how do I do that? Look at it again in verse 13 and I'm done. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God gives you the desire and the ability. But if we're not walking with God, we'll have neither. Listen, if you quit walking with God, don't be surprised when you don't desire the things of God anymore. Don't be surprised. Listen, if you're not reading your Bible and praying, if you're not listening to the preaching and letting it seep into your heart, don't be surprised when church gets boring. Don't be surprised when the prayer closet gets dry. Don't be surprised when the Bible gets old to you. It's God that worketh in us both to will and to do. If we're not letting God have His way in us, not only are we not going to do, we're not even going to will. We're not even going to desire. But if we'll submit our hearts and minds unto Him and say, Lord, use me. Lord, take my life. Let it be wholly consecrated unto Thee. Then we'll find that God will not only give us the power, He'll give us the passion. He'll give us, for lack of a better term, the want to, to serve Him. But we have to be willing to open our hearts and minds unto Him. And we have to have our hearts and lives submitted.